We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. Yeah, so uh, like Mike just said, my name is Knox Brown. I'm a student in seminary studying to one day be a pastor um, in, out in Louisville. And I'm just so thankful uh, to be here with you this morning and to open God's words together. Let's pray really quick before we get started. Uh, Lord God, we come before you recognizing your greatness and our unworthiness. Who are we, Lord, that we get to hear the living God speak? And yet, Lord, you've spoken to us in your word. Lord God, I, I pray that everything I say this morning would be in accord with what you have said in Psalm 80. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable each and every one of us here this morning to hear the message of the text, to believe it, to repent, and to trust in you today. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So, if you've never been to church before, what we're about to do next, Mike already explained it, but it's a little strange. We're going to open up a book that's 3,000 years old, and we're going to spend about 30 or 40 minutes talking about one section of it. And that's not something that is very typical on a Sunday morning. Maybe you've been in church your whole life and you've come to church every Sunday, but you haven't thought to yourself, why do we do this? Well, we do this because we are convinced as Christians that it's not just people who lived a long time ago and died and were forgotten that wrote this book. We believe that God, by his Holy Spirit, wrote his word through them in this book, that this book contains in it the very word of God. He spoke thousands of years ago, and as we read and understand
Restore us, O God, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we dive into the psalm, just a couple quick things to notice structurally. This is a a poem, or more accurately, a song. It's something that the people of Israel would have all gathered together and sung together and worshiped to God, like we just did earlier this morning. And if we just like roll, let your eyes glance over the text, you'll see that it's broken up into four paragraphs or, or verses or stanzas. Uh, each of those stanzas ends with a refrain or what we today call a chorus, where we repeat the same thing throughout the psalm. It's got the main message of the song is in the chorus, and it, we repeat it at the end of each section uh, in worship of God together. And so we see the chorus of, of this psalm for the first time in verse 3. It's restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. And each of those stanzas, each of those verses, is going to explore a different aspect of that one central prayer to God. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. And and each of the the stanzas is going to explain more of what that looks like uh, and add layers to that plea and that prayer to God. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to have four points looking at each of those stanzas helping us understand and apply that central prayer of a restored relationship with God that Asaph and the people of Israel have in this psalm uh, as we go through the the four movements of the psalm. And so the main idea for today's message is is taken directly from that chorus and from the fact that Psalm 80 is a prayer. And we read, "When When you feel far from God, Pray that he would turn you back to him and cause his face to shine upon you. When you feel far from God, pray that he would turn you back to him and cause his face to shine upon you. We're going to begin by looking at the first three verses. And if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, point number one is the God that we pray to. The God that we pray to. We read again, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, and let your face shine that we may be saved. Right away, the psalmist makes, wastes no time in making this urgent prayer to God. Give ear, God. Listen to me, please. And you can just feel the urgency of his requests. Seven times in three verses. He's going to ask God to hear him and give him salvation. He starts by saying, give ear in verse 1. Shine forth again in verse 1. Stir up your might. Come to save us in verse 2. Restore us. Let your face shine that we may be saved in verse 3. Seven times he's repeating this request over and over again. And we'll see more about what Asaph wants to be saved from as we keep reading. But just notice the, the urgency of whatever he's going through. Whatever he's going through, it's significant. God, I I need you to hear me. I need you to act. Shine forth. Stir up your might. Restore us. In such an urgent situation and desperate situation, notice the first place that he goes. It's not to his circumstance or to his suffering or some way that he can solve his own problem. Instead, he goes to the Lord. He goes to God. The very first thing he does is appeal to God on the basis of who God is. If we look at verse 1, he says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. 
he addresses God and he says something about him. This God is, God, you're our shepherd. You're our king who leads and guides and cares for us. You lead Joseph, which is another way of saying Israel, like a flock. Like a shepherd leads his flock, so you lead us. And God, you don't just care for us as a shepherd. You are enthroned above the cherubim. You rule the whole universe. Your throne is above the highest of the angels. And earth is only your footstool. I know that you're totally in control of my life and of the whole cosmos. So Asaph goes first to who God is. That's why he prays to him, because this is the God who rules the universe, enthroned upon the cherubim, and who also shepherds his people like a gentle shepherd with their flock. But Asaph doesn't just look to who God is, he also looks to what he's done. This is another reason that he comes to God in his moment of distress. All of the words uh, in these first three verses aren't just poetic and flowery ways of saying that God is king or that God is powerful and compassionate. They're all tied to a concrete event in history where God demonstrated his love and his power to save his people. They're all references back to the Exodus. You may remember the story, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were under the, the oppression of Pharaoh, having to get the straw to make their own bricks and hard labor and far from God. But God, because of his great love for them, chose to save them out of slavery. He brought them out of Egypt by signs and wonders. He shepherded them through the Red Sea and in through the wilderness for 40 years. He guided and protected them. And so when Asaph refers to God as a shepherd, he's referring back to that that journey in which God shepherded his people out of slavery and into the promised land, into his presence. He knows that God is the God who has delivered his people in the past. And so in his desperation in the present, he turns back to that same God, says, restore us, O shepherd of Israel. And the, the imagery continues. The reason that he says that God is enthroned above the cherubim instead of saying that God is enthroned above the stars is because he's referring to the Ark of the Covenant. When God brought the people out of Egypt, he instructed them to make a box and to make a tabernacle for his presence. And that box is called the Ark of the Covenant. It's a bronze box with the the pictures of two angels on either side, the cherubim. And it was said that the Ark was the footstool of God's throne. It was a special marker of his presence, but the people of Israel knew that it could not contain God. God was enthroned far above the cherubim, not on them, not between them, far above in the heavens, beyond the whole universe. And yet he had specially chosen to dwell with his people and place a a marker of his throne, his footstool, in their presence as he guided and shepherded them through the wilderness. And so in Asaph's desperation, he looks to who God is, this mighty God over the whole universe who shepherds his people, and to what he's done, the salvation he's already accomplished. And now, in the present, he, in his distress, he cries out and clings to that God. So brothers and sisters, when you're in distress and tribulation, 
Don't let the pain or the confusion drown out who your God is. He's the ruler of the world. He's your king and your compassionate shepherd. And remember not only what he's done in your life, but remember the great salvation he's already wrought for you. How he sent his own son to take you out of slavery to sin and bring you into his presence, granting you the very righteousness of Christ by Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. Bring God your distress, your pain, your fear, your confusion, just as Asaph does and will continue to do in this psalm. Because God is the king, the ruler who loves you and has saved you. Remember his salvation in the past and bring your distresses in the present to him. Because God delivered us from sin in the work of Christ, we know that he will deliver us from everything else we go through. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hopes that he will deliver us again. And he will deliver us again. Friends, all of this is, is true, that God is the shepherd, the king, and that he delivered us from sin and he will deliver us. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are many times in our life where it does not feel that way. Our lives don't seem to match up with those truths. God has delivered in, us in Christ, and we know that Christ will return and bring us into glory. But in the meantime, we do not feel like we are being delivered. It often feels as though God is not shepherding us in love. Often it feels as though God has abandoned us or even turned his back on us in anger. And Asaph had that very same experience. So we're going to keep reading in verse number four. O Yahweh, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You know, if, if all we had was the first three verses, it might sound as though this was a nice, safe, generic Christian prayer that safe, generic Christian people could pray. But Asaph says what you're not supposed to say. He accuses God of being angry at the fact that he's even praying to him. He says, God, the suffering you're taking me through is so intense that it feels like my prayers are just making you mad. It doesn't feel like you're answering my prayers. It feels like you are completely turned against me. And you have been for some time. So point number two, if you're taking notes, is, is quite simple. It's how long. How long? From how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? This is not a nice or safe, generic prayer. Uh, it's not something you often are going to hear uh, someone say. But it's brutally real. I think many of us, especially if you come from a church background, might be a bit uncomfortable with Asaph's language here. When I first read it, I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. Is this something I should repeat in my prayers? God isn't angry when his people pray to him, is he? I, we almost feel as though only someone with bad theology or a weak faith could accuse God of something like that. Because we know he's always good, right? And yet, here's an astounding thing. In divinely inspired scripture, Asaph writes to the Lord, why are you angry with your people's prayers? 
What's more astounding is not that, that Asaph says that, it's that God wrote that. Scripture is the word of God. And when God wrote a prayer for his people to pray to him, he wrote down an accusation against himself. He wants us with Asaph to pray like this to him, to accuse him of being angry with the, our prayers. And I think the first takeaway from this verse 4 is simply this. God doesn't ask us to bring our best to him in prayer. In fact, he wants our worst. He wants us to come to him with our fear, our anger, our discouragement, our bitterness, our confusion, our sorrow, our doubt, even our unbelief. He wants all of it. The prayer that demonstrates the most faith is not, Lord, I will never doubt you. The prayer that Jesus in the gospel says demonstrates the most faith of anyone he encounters is when the centurion says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So brothers and sisters, pray to the Lord honestly. God knows that there's anger in your heart, that there's discouragement, that there's doubt, that there's unbelief in him. Don't hide it when you pray to him. Pray honestly before the Lord. Tell him exactly what's going on. Pray when you feel far from God. When you resent him, when you harbor bitterness in your heart, when heaven seems shut up and barred with iron against you, and when it seems as though God has abandoned you and prayer is the last thing in the world that makes sense, pray then. Pray then the most and pray then the hardest. That is when God wants you to come to him. The mere fact, brothers and sisters, that you would pray to God in a situation like that demonstrates your faith in him. You don't need to dress up your language every time and say the right things and qualify what's in your heart. Just come to God in your brokenness and pray honestly before him. Of course, there is a place for, for preaching the gospel to yourself, for declaring those things that are true regardless of whether or not you believe them, in prayer to God and to yourself, holding on to promises of God over and against your own unbelief and doubt and fear. And Asaph's going to do that later in this very same psalm. But that is not to come at the expense of being honest before the Lord. In fact, I, I know in my heart when I try to only cling on to what's true, but I never admit what I actually believe, those promises of God can bounce off of a stony and callous heart. It's when I'm honest and rip myself open before the Lord that I'm having a really hard time trusting you right now. That's when those gospel promises find deep, fertile soil to sink in, in the pain and the suffering. And friends, whether or not you personally are currently in a season where this prayer resonates with you, where you feel far from God and feel as though he's turned away from you, I am confident you have brothers and sisters in this very church whose lives are full of pain and bitterness right now. As you come alongside them to support and encourage them, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, as Paul says, encourage them to be honest before the Lord. In many churches 
it's very difficult to be honest with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We come to church with an expectation that we're supposed to be good Christian people who have it all together and believe God perfectly at all times. Friends, make this a church where when you come alongside each other, you encourage that real honesty in your brothers and sisters to come to the Lord in their brokenness, to not have it all together before you and before God. The gospel is for sinners and for sufferers. So encourage one another in your honesty before the Lord. Listen well, and when you come to a fellow church member to ask how they're doing, wait long enough for an honest answer. As we keep going, Asaph's prayer gets even darker. We read in verse five and six, verses 5 and 6, You have fed them, that is your people, with the bread of tears, and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. We have here an image of unbridled sorrow, weeping every day and night. Like David says, every night I flood my bed with tears. And more than that, he is feeding on his tears. No longer is he being provided for by God with bread and water. Instead, God is feeding him tears day and night. The imagery from Exodus is continuing here. Whereas in the wilderness, God fed his people with bread from heaven and living water from the, walk, from the rock, he now gives them tears instead. No more bread, just tears. No more water, just more tears. And as if that suffering weren't bad enough, Asaph says we're being mocked by our enemies while we suffer. So when he gets to the chorus this second time, it bursts out of him. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O God, let your face shine. When your face shone before you took us out of Egypt, you shepherded us, you fed us living water and bread from heaven. But now your face is turned away. We are aimless and leaderless. And for food, we eat the salt of our tears and we drink their water. Oh God, restore us. Bring us out of this season of suffering. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Brothers and sisters, does this prayer resonate with you? I can't imagine that many of you have not experienced a season where God's face hasn't seemed far from you, where it does feel like we feed on our tears day and night, and we long to see blue skies and God's face smiling on us again. I'm guessing nearly everyone in this room has had that experience. But as Christians, what is it that causes us the most grief, the most suffering, and the most discouragement in our lives? It isn't our circumstances, is it? Nothing's more painful to a follower of Christ than their own indwelling sin. We love God, we seek to follow him, and yet time and time again, we find ourselves turning back to selfishness, to lust, to anger, to pride, to self-indulgence, to greed, to apathy, to prayerlessness, and to idolatry. We may even feel that it doesn't matter whether God were to answer this prayer. If he were to shine his face upon me, I wouldn't even know because my face is buried in the mud and I can't get it out. 
Friends, I have good news for you. Asaph's prayer is not only or even primarily for our own circumstances. It's primarily a plea that God would restore us by changing our own hearts. Do you see that word restore at the very beginning of verse 7? This is the key word in the whole psalm. Begins the chorus every time. That word is the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn. But Hebrew words have many forms, and in this psalm, in Psalm 80, shuv is in what's called its causal form, which means it really means cause us to turn, as in cause our hearts to turn back to you. The ESV translators decided this was really clunky in English, especially for poetry. That's a long sentence. Turns one word into like eight. But there is a powerful message in that causal stem. When we're mired in our own sin, when we face discouragement and setbacks in this never-ending war against the flesh, we can lock arms as a church and call out to our God to change our hearts. Lord God, cause us to turn, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. In the Christian life, we have no hope in ourselves not for any step of the journey, not for salvation and not for perseverance in the Christian life. Our only hope of defeating sin, our only hope of a continuing, ongoing relationship with God is on God changing us, on him turning our hearts. And so, as you fight sin, cry out with Asaph for God to change you. Don't fight sin merely in your own strength. Do so in a desperate dependence on the grace of God. I'm young and I'm still learning what that looks like, but I know fighting sin in my own strength does not work. Of course, there there are practical steps. There are guardrails. There's accountability, disciplines. There are things that are practically necessary in the war against the flesh, and I'm not demeaning those in any way. But those things cannot and will not change your heart. Only God can do that. So any real, lasting sanctification must come from him who turns us back to him. So pray. Pray like Asaph is doing right here. Beg God to change you. Wrestle with him like Jacob did. When the man came and Jacob grabbed hold of him and said, I will not let go until you bless me. Lord God, I will not let go of you in prayer until you transform me. Please, God, I'm consumed by insecurity and by pride. I need you to turn my heart to you. Please, God, I'm walking alongside my brother or sister in the church who's mired in pornography. We we plead with you together. Turn our hearts to you. God is a church. We're selfish. We're often more concerned about our own comforts than the need of the brothers and sisters sitting next to us or than the lost in the world around us. Together, we all pray, Lord God, turn us back to you. Turn our hearts. And then Asaph says, let your face shine. We need God to do both sides of the relationship. We need him to turn to us, and we need him to turn us to him. The whole work of salvation of the Christian life, it's God from beginning to end. 
He handles our side and he handles his side. So we pray, turn us to you and shine on us in favor. And then he concludes that that we may be saved. God, if you do these two things, if you turn us to you and you turn towards us, if you restore our relationship with you, all the circumstances of life will fall into place. Here, Asaph is heading along with his whole nation into exile. But he knows that the people's heart is turned back to God. Their big problem is not that they're going into slavery in Babylon. Their big problem is they need a restored relationship with God. And when that happens, salvation for all the circumstances and all the suffering will follow. Lord God, restore us. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Much more could be said, but there's still two stanzas to go. So we're going to jump down to verse 8, which cover, uh, point 3, which is going to cover verses 8 through 15. Point number 3 on your notes is simply why. As we read, we read, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the fields feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine for, and for the sun whom you made strong for yourself. So what's going on here? We had a, a fairly straightforward psalm. It was easy to understand. And you now we've got a vine and a born and a son. And what's he talking about? The, the vine in, in the Old Testament is a very common poetic image for the people of Israel. There's this common way of describing the Exodus uh, which if you're getting the idea that the Exodus is important to Asaph, it is. It's kind of like the central event of the Old Testament. So there's this imagery in the prophets and in the poets and even in Moses' own songs about the Exodus of God taking the vine, which represents the people, out of Egypt and planting them. And planting them is a reference to them, God establishing them in the promised land where his presence dwelt with them. So he's saying, you brought a vine out of Egypt you drove out the nations before us and you planted us. We took deep root and we filled the land. And then we see that Asaph describes what it was like living in God's presence. He has this imagery of this little vine growing up until it towers over the very mountains and the greatest trees of the time, the cedars of Lebanon, and be like the, the sequoias of the redwoods. So this little vine grows up and it flourishes. And there's a small reference to the size of Israel expanding during that time. But primarily, that's about what it was like to flourish in God's presence and to live with him under his blessing. But then there's a dramatic shift in verse 12. Why then have you broken down the vine's walls? Everyone who passes along the way plucks its fruit. Wild animals come through and they trample it and devour the produce. Does, does anybody here garden or have like a farm or something? 
this is a responsive question. Yes. yes. Okay. What What do you grow? <laughs> All right, so so we'll go we'll go with tomatoes. I'm not. I'm from Southern California. Everything there is cement. There's there's no land. So, but I don't know how this works. But I would assume that before you plant those tomatoes, you have to build like some kind of enclosure so that like wild animals don't get in, your kids don't trample them. Okay. Yes. So if you were to if you were to take that fence down and your neighbors just start walking through your backyard right in the middle of your tomato plant. Your kids run out there. They decide to have a football game in the tomato patch. And then maybe, I don't know, what, what kind of wild animals do you get in, in Ohio? Bears? bears. Deer. <laughs> we get bears in California. I was like, that's weird. I've never heard of deer. Yeah. So if, if you're, you're, you know, your neighbors are walking through your tomato field. The, the deers are coming through. They're eating whatever they want. Uh, What's going to happen to that plant? It's not going to be very good. It, that, that plant's going to shrivel up. It's going to die. It's going to wither. It's going to be bent, bruised, broken. And that's the imagery. God, you planted us. You established us. We grew. We flourished under your care as you shepherded us. And now, God, not only have you stopped protecting us, you're the very one who knocked down the wall. You're the very one who is turned against us. And so the psalmist cries out, why God? Why would you turn your back on us? Why would you let our enemies trample over and devour us? After you worked so hard to save us, after you brought us out of Egypt, why are you sending us back into Babylon? You swore covenant promises to us and to our forefathers. So why are you abandoning us now? We feel like that sometimes, right? God, I don't get it. You gave me my dream job only for the company to downsize a year later. Or you saved me. Brought me into this wonderful church, but I spent my Christian life mired in sin that I don't think I can ever get rid of. Why, God? Why are you breaking down the walls? But you know what's, what's fascinating here? Asaph actually knows exactly why God broke down the walls. He's the author of Psalm 78, which if you can count, it's two psalms before this, 78, 79, 80. And Psalm 78 is a psalm that recounts Israel's history. And its main point is to say that God is absolutely, completely right and just in destroying Israel and casting them into exile. It recounts every significant event in the history of the nation, talks about God's favor to them, his blessing, his salvation of them, and then describes how immediately after God would save the people and restore them, they would run off to idols and completely turn their back on them. Him. So the main point of Psalm 78 is we deserve what's coming to us. We deserve all of God's wrath and all of God's judgment. And there's several textual connections that clue us in that Psalm 78 and Psalm 80 are meant to mutually inform one another, not just that Asaph is the author of both. If you have questions about that, I can show you later. But the point is this. Asaph isn't confused about why God judged his people. He knows. 
He wrote the history lesson explaining it to the generations that would follow. And yet he still asks God why. What's going on with that? Why does he ask God a question that he already knows the answer to? Because Asaph knows that the people's sin cannot and will not have the final word. Yes, the Mosaic Covenant has been broken. Yes, God is absolutely right to send the people into exile and bring all the curses of the covenant on them. And yet, God made promises to the people through Abraham and through David that were unconditional. God cannot and will not let his purposes to save the people be ruined by their own sinfulness. So Asaph asks, why God? Not why as though this is unjust, but why haven't you turned our hearts back to you already? How long will you allow our sin, our weakness, our rebellion against you to stand in the way of your purposes to save us, to stand in the way of your restoration? How long until you turn us back to you and shine upon us? Lord God, we're wretched sinners who completely deserve your justice. We know and acknowledge that. We're totally dependent on you to save us from the outside and to change us on the inside. And so, oh God, we need you to act. We are desperate, Lord. That's Asaph's prayer. And in many ways, it, it can be ours too. So once again, in his desperation, Asaph cries out to the Lord as we also cry out with him. And point number four on your notes is this. God shines and turns us to him by his son. God shines and turns us to him by his son. We read in verse 14, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, for the son, uh, the stock that you, your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. We've here reached the climax. Asaph's desperation is at a fever pitch. We're back to the chorus, but it looks different this time. He can't contain himself and stick with just repeating the same poetic structure. And in desperation, he breaks out, Turn again, O God! Look down from heaven. Have regard for your people. Remember how you adopted us as a son and planted us as a vine. Don't disown us and turn your back on us forever. Look at how your enemies have ravished and destroyed the work of your hands. Rescue us and vindicate us. And God will do just that. How does, how does he do that? We keep reading. This is before Christ has come, but we read, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then, then, we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. So how is it that God makes it so that the people turn to him and never again turn away? Never again will he turn his back on them? By sending his son. Sending his son both to save them and give the people a spirit of repentance. And when Jesus Christ came, he died for our sins so that God's face could turn to us again and shine on us in favor. And he sent his Holy Spirit to give us a heart of repentance 
so that we would turn to the Lord and never again fully turn away from him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, what I'm about to say is the most important thing that I have said all day. God is holy, just, and good. Because of this, he hates evil. And all of us are full of evil in our hearts, just like the people of Israel. We all rebel against God continually. And the just penalty for our sin is the eternal wrath of God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by whom and for whom all things were made, was made to be a man for your salvation. He lived a perfect life as a man, fully living up to all God's laws and all God's standards. In every thought, word, and deed, he never sinned. And then he died a criminal's death on the cross, absorbing the eternal wrath of God for you in a matter of hours before rising again victorious and ascending to the right hand of his Father. Right now, he offers you an exchange. The trade goes like this. He gets all of your sin, which he already paid for on the cross, and you get his perfection and the eternal life with God it brings. All you have to do to receive that gift, it's free, is accept it by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repentance means a turning away from sin in your heart and a turning toward God. And we just spent an entire Sunday morning talking about how that is not a work we're able to do on our own. So we know that. If you're not a Christian, you can't change your heart. But God can. And if you ask him to, he will. So friends, I would urge you today not to leave without talking to someone about what that would look like and without asking God to change your heart away from your sin and towards Christ. If you are a Christian, what about you? We're not waiting on Christ to come and grant us repentance anymore. He's done that. He's accomplished the work. He sent us his spirit. We now dwell in the presence of God, and God's face will never be turned away from us fully like it was with the people of Israel. He always sees us in the righteousness of Christ, and he never turns away. So how do we live out and pray this song? Well, we are still here waiting for Christ to come again. And until he does, our sin and our sufferings will often lead us to feel as though God is far and that his face is turned away. It's not true. God's face never turns away from his people that are in Christ. And yet our sin blinds us and makes us where we cannot see his face. And so we are waiting. Like Asaph was waiting for Christ to come the first time, we're waiting for him to come again. We're waiting for him to give us new bodies and cast our sin far away from us. We're waiting for him to come and dwell with us face to face in the new heavens and the new earth, where we can see the face of God that's shining upon us, not just believing that it's so from a distance. And when he returns, we will see the face of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will know his love and his favor like we have never known it before. 
forever. His face will shine upon us and we will be fully and completely saved. So wait and pray and hope for his return. When you feel far from God, especially when that is from your own sin and your own weakness, pray to him. Pray that he turn back your heart to him. Pray that he shine his face upon you. Pray that your Lord Jesus would return soon. We're going to close uh, this morning with a responsive reading. Uh, we've got one more chorus to go. And so I'm going to read the first half of it with Restore Us, O Lord of Hosts, and then you guys are going to repeat. Uh, you guys are all together going to read Let Your Face Shine, that we may be saved. So I believe there's a slide. Uh, if everybody would uh, stand with me. Okay, ready? Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Amen.